Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Once upon a time, there was a young girl in Nazareth named Miriam. And you might know her as Mary, but her friends, believe me, her friends and neighbors called her Miriam. She was sweet and she was hardworking. She had learned the scriptures from her parents from a young age. She learned to worship God faithfully and devoutly, and she worshiped him by working hard every day. And so every day, Miriam would wash clothes, she would weave and mend cloth, she would go outside of town in order to pump water and buy grain at the market. Miriam would knead bread and bake it for her family. She took care of her parents as they aged. She took care of any of her younger siblings that she had. And on and on and on, these were some of Miriam's jobs. That was life for Miriam. Now, it was also a custom in those days that when a girl was very young, her parents would make an arrangement of marriage for her. So Miriam's parents had already, by this time, by the time we meet her, they had already looked after this, and someday Miriam would become the wife of Joseph the carpenter. In the meantime, she worked hard, she kept quiet, she didn't draw a lot of attention to herself, and at just the right time, Miriam would be a wife, and maybe God would give her a house full of children, maybe even some sons. And that was as much as a young woman in those days hoped for. It was a hard time to be a girl. It was a dangerous time to be a girl, in fact. There was no such thing as gender equality in those days. In fact, some philosophers believed and taught that a girl is what you get when a boy failed to form completely in the mother's womb. Okay, there are some who were teaching that in those days. There's even an old Hebrew prayer that some religious leaders would pray three times a day. It, was, it comes from the Talmud, and this prayer would, goes like this. It goes, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has created me a human and not a beast, an Israelite and not a Gentile, a man and not a woman. And that prayer would be prayed three times uh, a day. So there are no feminists in these days. There was no feminism. That was just not a thing. The culture clearly favors men. Men are, the, men are the favored ones. And so in this culture, suppose mom and dad get sick and they can't work. Well, it's Miriam who has to put her, her plans and her ambitions on hold in order to look after the family, not her brothers. If Miriam's parents died, God forbid, if her parents died, she would inherit far less of their estate than her brothers would, than a son would. Someday when Miriam gets married, if it turns out that she's unable to conceive, if it turns out that that couple can't have children, everyone's going to assume that it's her fault. They're going to assume that she's barren. It's her fault. And so she might find herself divorced and abandoned from a young age. In fact, in that culture, if they go to synagogue together, if a husband and wife go to synagogue together, they can't, they can't even sit together not at the synagogue, not at the temple either. Women have to sit in an entirely different section of the building. In the wider culture, a girl is in danger from, from the king. At any time, Herod the Great, who is the king at, at this time, he could, if a young girl like Miriam came to his attention, caught his eye, he could take her home and, and he could make her 
one of his wives. He just had that power because he's a king. In fact, if Caesar, Caesar Augustus, if he goes to war with an enemy nation and his soldiers are marching through the town of Nazareth, if one of those soldiers happens to take an interest in young Miriam, well, he can decide to, to take her to his bed and she can't object. That's just how it was in those days. She can't say no. There's no such thing as, as consent. So to be a girl in this time means, it, it means most of your choices are made for you. It also means that you're in danger on all kinds of sides. So this is a dangerous time and it's a dangerous place to be a girl. So in that context, one day, when Miriam is somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14 years old, Mary has this surprise visitor. Okay, we call this event the Annunciation because something really big is announced. So it's this angel Gabriel, and we heard this read in our scripture reading earlier. The angel Gabriel visits Miriam, and this is one of a handful of important visits that tells the story of the nativity. So when Gabriel shows up, he announces to Miriam, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Some older versions say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, which is the beginning of of the Hail Mary, if any of you have a Roman Catholic background, that's where this comes from. The angel tells her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And from here, he explains this incredible role that Mary is going to play in the birth of the Messiah. He tells her, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, Miriam, understandably, she's got some questions. She's never even touched a man. How can she be pregnant? And the angel Gabriel explains the Holy Spirit, has, he's got this. He's going to make it happen, and he's going to take care of everything. In fact, at this very moment, Mary's relative, we think she's a cousin, an older cousin, but Elizabeth is also pregnant. She's in her sixth month of her pregnancy. And all of this is proof that nothing is impossible for God. God can do and will do exactly as he says. And Mary's response to it all, well, then may it happen to me as you have said. She accepts. May it be to me. May it happen to me as you have said. And here I just want to pause and I want to just observe a couple of things that are really important that have happened uh, and that have changed in the life of Mary so far. Because Mary's life has just changed in a couple of ways. Number one, the angel has helped her to see who she really is. He's helped her to see she is a favored woman. Now think about this. In her culture, she is not favored. Her culture favors men. Her culture values men, not young women. Not, certainly not Miriam. And suddenly, Miriam learns God sees her. Like of all people, God has seen her and he cares about her. He has noticed her, and he's actually quite fond of her, that, of, of, that among women she is, is favored. She's highly favored. God is quite fond of her. That's who she is. And the angel helps her to see something else. He helps her to see what she will be. So she's going to be a mother. We obviously, we, we can see that from the text. She's going to be a mother, and her son is going to be this really important person. He, she's going to call him Jesus, and he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. And when Jesus comes into the world, he will come through her. And for the rest of her life, 
Mary, is new, Mary will have this new identity of being the God-bearer, okay? She'll be the God-bearer. In fact, one of the early sort of controversies in the early church was sort of a debate about what is Jesus? Like, what do we do with him? What is the nature of Jesus? Like, is, is he, was he a, a person? Was he God? Was he like half and half? Was he fully God and was he fully human? And, and that was a debate that raged for a couple of, the first couple of centuries of the church. And when they resolved it and they concluded that it's the last, that, that Jesus is both fully human and he is fully divine, and, and both of those natures reside in one person, when they concluded that, their understanding, their, their esteem for Miriam, for their esteem for Mary, suddenly shot up. And they gave her this nickname, they gave her this name, the Theotokos, which means the God-bearer. It's a Greek term for God-bearer. That's what Mary was, the Theotokos. It's not that she was a goddess. It's not that Mary had powers of her own to answer prayer. It's not that nobody was saying in those days that she was without sin. But Mary became a model of surrender to God's will and obedience to God's will. And the church recognized from a very early time that she deserved some some honor uh, because of that. And so after this visit, a lot has changed. Mary has a new understanding of who she is. She's also got a new perspective on who she will be, and she has embraced it, and she said, may it be to me as you've said, may it happen to me as you've said. But there's another visit that happens right after this. Okay? We read that Miriam set out and hurried to visit her relative Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth and Zechariah were quite old at this point. They'd been unable to have children on their own, and now they find themselves pregnant. She's actually six months along, and she's pregnant with this child who we learn later is going to be John the Baptist. Miriam arrives, and she can see with her own eyes that her cousin, in in this old age, is pregnant, and it's confirmed for her. Elizabeth, by seeing Elizabeth, it's been confirmed for her. In fact, what we, we read in the text is that when Miriam arrived and the baby inside of Elizabeth heard her voice, the baby jumped, the baby leapt for joy. Well, if there was any doubt about whether God sees Miriam, if there was any doubt or concern about whether he cares or has noticed Miriam, it's confirmed by Elizabeth. Elizabeth tells her, verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. In verse 45, uh, in verse 45, she says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Now, at this point, Mary has heard it from the angel. She's heard about her, 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 her identity, her future from Elizabeth as well, and there is this song that's welling up in her heart that has to come out. It's part poem, it's part song, it's part prophecy, it's part you might say, a manifesto. We call it the Magnificat. Traditionally, it's called the Magnificat because in it she magnifies the greatness of God by announcing all kinds of ways that the world is now going to be different because of the arrival of the Messiah. Like when Jesus comes, he's going to turn everything upside down, and that's what Mary expresses in this Magnificat. She begins with, Uh, kind of naming herself as this humble servant that no one notices, and yet God has looked with favor on her, and from now on, all generations will call her blessed. 
She says God has done great things for her. So there is this reversal. There's this turning of things upside down. Well, there's more. She says that for those who are proud, for the people in that day who consider themselves a big deal, Mary says that God has scattered them. She says the mighty and the powerful, there's, there's these, all these corrupt rulers and leaders who sit on thrones and they're living in wealth and comfort and privilege and they pull the strings on the culture. Miriam says God has toppled them. God has toppled them. Yes, Herod the Great. Yes, Caesar Augustus. And in their place, God has placed the lowly. Miriam's saying this, the, the ones who have been ignored, the ones who've been stepped on, Mary says God has exalted them. Can you believe that? Sweet, invisible, anonymous, hardworking, faithful, humble Mary is saying these things. Well, there's more. She goes on. She says that the hungry, those who've starved, those who have gone without, will be, they will be filled and satisfied. But the rich, who were the ones who were, you know, handed everything on a silver platter, those who hog all of the resources, Mary says, they have been sent away empty. Well, she's not done. She goes on. She's, then she, she ends by declaring something really hopeful and positive for Israel. Israel, understand, at this moment, is thought to be lost and scattered and forgotten. And the ten tribes are scattered somewhere in the north and they may nev- nobody may ever see them again. Israel is lost, it's believed at this point. And she says, God hasn't forgotten them. God has has helped Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he said he would. God is remembering his mercy to Israel. And if you step back and kind of take what Mary has has declared in this Magnificat, this is dangerous language, don't you think? This is, you you can't just go around saying stuff like this. If you were a young man, you could could get in big trouble for saying these sorts of things. But certainly if you're a young woman, you don't just go around saying stuff like this and not expect to get in trouble. This is the sort of language that starts revolutions. This is the sort of language that causes people to organize and 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 protest and perhaps overthrow a government. In fact, if you if we didn't know uh, that this was coming from a teenaged girl in Nazareth, we might think that it was coming from Amos. We might think it was coming from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the other prophets. Because this is prophecy. This is prophecy. This is thus saith the Lord kind of talk. This is dangerous. Don't you agree? Miriam's got this this confidence in God and it's made her bold and fearless and and holy and and she's changed. She's become a dangerous person in this culture. And, And I think that this is worth reflecting on for a moment, especially here at the beginning of Advent. It's worth reflecting on, and here's why. See, you don't have to spend a lot of time in Scripture or in church history to see that the issue of women and womanhood is complicated. Is that fair to say? It's a complicated issue, okay? Like, if you, what you have in Scripture is this tension between the fact that that God loves women and men equally. He loves them equally. He, he calls men and women to worship Him and to follow him equally. He gifts men and women equally with spiritual gifts and callings, and yet there seems to be some some distinctions in how men and women are to follow and serve God in community. 
And if you ask, say, like any five churches or any, if you take any five denominations and you ask them what those distinctions should look like, if you ask any five churches what biblical womanhood means, you'll get five different answers. And I don't expect that I'm going to solve that today. I'm not going to try. But let me put forward Mary as an example of biblical womanhood. Okay? There is a certain form of womanhood that comes very naturally in many parts of church world. And, and, and for it, Miriam is the, the poster woman. M women are quiet. Women are submissive and hardworking. They work hard behind the scenes, but not, certainly not up front. They don't criticize they don't dominate. They don't take over. Women don't ask questions. They're not critical. They don't offer constructive feedback. Women should not stand out. Women should not dress too nicely. Women should not speak their minds. And you can defend that version of biblical womanhood. You can defend it, but only if you stop reading the story of Mary before the angel arrives. Let me say that again. You can defend that vision, that version of biblical womanhood only if you stop reading Mary's story before the angel arrives. Because if you keep reading, we see that after Miriam hears from God, after she accepts her calling from God, she becomes this like bold, prophetic, subversive, fearless, faithful activist, and she is fully surrendered to God. Surely this is biblical womanhood. And I think that that needs to be said because I, think, I can think of a lot of faith communities where Mary wouldn't even be allowed to say these things. And that matters, don't you think? I can think of faith communities where if Mary were to stand up and she were to offer her Magnificat in some circles, you can bet that some male leader would interrupt her and would ask her to take her seat and say something like, excuse me, miss, but we're not that kind of church. Or, excuse me, miss, but that's not how we do things around here. Something like that, okay? Or they might email her husband about it uh, after. And so it seems to me what's so powerful about the story of Mary is that when we meet her, she is sweet, invisible, soft-spoken Miriam. She's handling the challenges of life with grace and humility. And once she has accepted God's will, she's changed from the girl who faces danger to the girl who is dangerous. She's changed from a girl, who, from a girl in danger to a dangerous girl. And, um, and I think that this needs to be said once in a while. That, I, that the, the biblical womanhood is actually kind of dangerous. What Mary represents is kind of dangerous. It's dangerous for those who assume that women are gullible, who assume women are foolish and superficial and weak. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for those who use the Bible to silence and to shame people of all kinds. It's, it's dangerous to abusive husbands. It's, a, it's dangerous to mansplainers, and it's dangerous to men who objectify women for their own uh, pleasure. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because you know that everything that is wrong will be made right, and that Jesus is better than anything else that the world has to offer. If there is such a thing as biblical womanhood, I really believe that that's it. And so Mary is a model for all of us. Whether you're male or female, Mary is a role model for all of us, and I think we have a lot to learn from her. 
In fact, the next time in Scripture that we see Mary, she and Joseph are married, and they're making their, their, the long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to deliver the child and to escape King Herod, who wants him killed. And, and, and when she gives birth, she finds herself not only the mother of a newborn child, but she finds herself with a house full of guests and strangers and visitors and, and who are bringing gifts, and she's got to deal with it. A few years later, Mary is going to travel with Joseph, and they're going to go into Jerusalem and tear the place upside down looking for Jesus because he's lost, and they'll find him at the temple teaching. In fact, Mary is there at a bunch of key points in Jesus' ministry. She's there at the beginning, of course, but she's there at a bunch of key points, especially at the cross. She's there at the cross as her boy Jesus suffers and dies. She's one of the few disciples who are with Jesus after the resurrection and before the ascension. She's there at Pentecost, and I think that that's fitting. How, how fitting it is that here's Mary who gives birth to Jesus, and how fitting it is that she is there at the birth of the church, at the birth of Jesus' church, where she's going to carry the same sort of good news, the same kind of dangerous, subversive message that she sang in her Magnificat, that's going to be the same message that the church is going to take into the world and make disciples. And so I love the story of Mary. I love the story of Mary, and, and I, I think it's a story that bears telling at least once a year, not just because of what Mary means for women, although that's certainly true, that's certainly important, but because Mary is an example for all of us. All of us struggle to believe that we matter to God. All of us struggle to believe uh, and to accept that we have a part to play in God's story. And so sometimes God sends a visitor to help us to believe these things that we can't believe ourselves. Let me say that again. Sometimes I think God, he sends a visitor to help us to believe the things that otherwise we would find unbelievable. Don't you think that's true? When he does, we learn that we're not invisible. We learn that we are not insignificant. But as we, as we obey, as we accept God's will, as we embrace it and say, may it be to me as you have said, that obedience and faithfulness, that makes us dangerous. Now, I, I totally get it that most of us, our role in God's kingdom is not going to be something like giving birth to the Messiah. On the other hand, I do think that all of us is sent into the world to bring Christ into places where he isn't already known. In that sense, each of us is a God-bearer, don't you think? Each of us is a God-bearer. And so as I, as I close, I'm, I'm going to ask some questions for us that we can take home. The first question is this. Would you believe them if God sent someone to tell you that you are a favored one? Would you believe it? If God sent someone to tell you that you're a favored one, question two, what might God do in your life if you said to him, may it be to me as you have said? Third question, when do you think Mary most embodied biblical womanhood? When did she most embody biblical womanhood? Before the angel or after? Question four, to whom or what does your obedience to God make you dangerous? 
Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you.